the screen is starting to black. That's a good thing. Now I'm in the top corner. Dot. Uh, okay. It says yeah, it has started. I'll just, uh, you know, when I go and edit it, I'll just kind of cut it to where we actually get started. Um, so I'll just do like a brief intro and then I'll, assuming that not everybody knows who you are, I'll just sort of ask a bit of a bio question at the beginning, even though I know <laughs> a little bit about you. Okay. So today I'm interviewing Damarato, uh, who is a lineage teacher in Thailand. He was ordained under Ajahn Buddhadasa at Wat Swan Mook in southern Thailand, which is how I came to know him, uh, just through his association with Ajahn Buddhadasa. And currently he's actively teaching students one-on-one -on -one online through Skype. He has a really unique style of instruction where students can call him and he gives them all the time that they need and uh, gives them one-on-one -on -one instruction making references to suttas and uh, personalizing his instruction to their needs so this is damarato um how are you doing today damarato everything's okay everything's fine excellent yeah, so just to start, for people who don't know you too well, I just wanted to begin by asking you just um, what started you on the path of awakening and what eventually led you to Buddhism and then eventually to teaching in the way that you're teaching now? Well, I could go all the way back to the age of three when I figured out that my mommy loved her church more than she did me. And that's it into motion um, sort of a long-term argument that I had with Southern Baptist and that led into actually psychology and then into uh, India and then into Buddhism and we're all talking about the 1970s with with all of that including experimenting with meditation uh, in high school. But the big deal was is that I had enough of whatever it took to get out of the role and, and get into Asia. But that's a major, major leap. Very few people can muster that. I'm making a big change intentionally. Quit your job, pack your bags, leave those bags with somebody else, get on a plane and take a hike. <laughs> and uh, in, in that, so, you know, in the spirit of the times in the 70s, um, with all of the different traditions that were around, how did you end up uh, finding the Buddhist path and eventually finding Ajahn Buddhadasa? Um, <clears throat> in India, uh, Goenka was becoming a bit famous and so doing a retreat with him. Uh, and then I ran across a monk in Bodh Gaya who was um, a student of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa and a resident of Wat Chulapatan in Bangkok. And to be honest with you, he, he absolutely insisted that I go see Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. 
and I did. And then quite a number of monks, a couple of years maybe um, after that, I was visiting Wat Tulipatan, and there he is sitting there remembering me that he had seen me in India. That there was a, a lot of friendship and camaraderie that way that I felt really warm that uh, uh, he had guided me in the, in the right direction. An interesting side note, by the way, was his name was Damarato. Oh. <laughs> uh, what does the Rato part of Damarato mean? <laughs> uh, it actually has um, similar qualities to the word Nandi, like in Ananda. Oh, okay. Okay, and it has the quality of being delighted. Oh. Well, that's very fitting for you. <laughs> Yeah, well, I got the name. I got to live up to it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have my uh, I brought my Santa Claus mug with me today uh, because okay. I remember when I first met you, I asked you a little bit about Ajahn Buddha Dasa just because I was curious about him. And you told me that he uh, was like Santa Claus. <laughs> I was wondering if, if you could say a little more about that, about a little bit more about Ajahn Buddhadasa, what he was like um, and what it was like to kind of um, learn the Dhamma from him. My impression was is that he was chuckling nonstop. That's <laughs> just the way that I felt about him. Uh, and that uh, I felt that he held me dear that he cared about me. Uh, and that also was very much evident in, in through uh, Achan uh, Po, who was the abbot of Watsuanmo. In fact, he's still the abbot of Watsuanmo, 93 now. And so, uh, yeah, it was that, uh, that was that kind of connectedness, like I had found myself at home that I found what I needed to find. And that was like 1983. 1983, okay. So um, you generally, uh, in, your, in your discussions with your students, you talk about like a distinction between um, the Dhamma of ordinary people and what you call the noble Dhamma or the super mundane Dhamma. Uh, could you mm -hmm. talk about about that aspect of your teaching, uh, its connection to Ajahn Buddhadasa, and its sort of application in everyday life? All right. Um, the ordinary Dhamma is the Dhamma of, let us say, the masses in whatever Buddhist country that you're in, which will have a hodgepodge of their old beliefs and a lot of good wisdom out of Buddhism and things like that. But ordinary Buddhism on its own is not, uh, let us say, uh, freedom. That one must go from the ordinary through the noble path to the super mundane. You're not actually going to rise above the world without rising above the world. That's basically what it means. <laughs> and in that regard, we can say that, yes, in ordinary Buddhism, you have an eightfold path. You have the Four Noble Truths. You have all of that kind of stuff. But in the Noble Dhamma is, is that that's liberating. 
because you got to see the dukkha. When you can see it, you can avoid it. Look and see it right now or reflect upon it that we've just been. <laughs> it's like when you're deep in your own mire, it's good to remember that you walked right into it. And let's look at how that happened so that we can step back out and decide that we're not going to step in that kind of stuff anymore. We can recognize that what we're angry at is not worth being angry at. And most of that would mean then this is that most of the uh, situations we find ourselves in are manufactured social situations, game playing and other things like that. That though we feel like we're being ganged up on, really, we are not Frankenstein and we are not uh, being confronted by a village full of angry people with pitchforks and, and uh, uh, clubs and axes and whatnot like that. And that's the way we feel. And in fact, that's not the reality. That's just a feeling. And that the real situation is not really dangerous at all. That in fact, it may not be a mob, it may be only a couple, or it may not be any couple, it may even be only one person who's criticizing you, know? and even in that case, it may be you inside just doing the criticism. <laughs> and yet we feel like that we're being besieged. Mental preparations. All right, so um, when we can see that stuff, we put a stop to it and recognize that we're not besieged, we're not under danger said everything is already okay if we just see it that way which is also a kind of a, 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 a different mentality or a different view of the world like right noble view is actually more of a viewing a looking rather than as a seeing a way and then thinking that the things are that way no, things keep changing, so we have to keep looking, keep modifying, keep watching, keep investigating, and especially what's happening right now, because that's where the dukkha lies, is in not watching it when it's happening, and then we step right in it. Uh, so, when we uh, begin to change our attitude, see, we're all born in, with the attitude of being a victim. Babies are victims, no doubt about it. Uh, they can't change their diaper. They don't speak the language. They can't walk and talk. Not one tender infant picks up a sword and shield and goes whacking around at politicians and becoming successful at it. Doesn't happen that way. Uh, things are a very, very slow process. And even in our childhood, the child is still a victim. He's got to do what he's told to do, go to school, pick up his toys. And uh, as kids, we begin to resent all of the stuff that we're told to do. And we don't want to be told what to do. So we give ourselves those rules. Oh, if you tell yourself not to do that, then somebody else is not going to have to tell you not to do that. And so we imprint that way. And we continue along being in that victim's position of following the rules to get along, go along to get along, do what we're told to do, and resent it. Huh. And then feel guilty about resenting it. 
sometimes rebelling against it. Okay, we all have this, and this all is just merely different forms of dukkha that we lash upon ourselves through these sets of rules that actually wind up defining our personality. And so when we change the rules, we can actually thereby change the personality. You don't have to be the person that you think that you were, that, the, that what you were was something that was trying to follow a set of rules and get it right. And when we stop following the rules and start being friends with ourselves on the inside, nourishing ourselves, then we can be friends and nourish each other. And stop playing those games that we used to play for dominance. Go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, uh, just to kind of uh, understand what you're saying, so it sounds like as because we're at sort of a helpless position and things are sort of just happening to us, we're not in a state of, of wisdom. Um, we grow up um, under the condition of thinking happening but that we don't have any control of it is, is that kind of what you mean when you talk yes about exactly we grow up under the impression that we're out of control mm -hmm. and without looking closely we continue to believe that we're out of control and what the practice of the dhamma is the noble dhamma is to start controlling it mm -hmm. to start controlling the mind to start taking the unwholesome thoughts that are just random all over the place making us feel bad we've talked ourselves into feeling bad now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good to take control of the situation to come out of our victimhood into being a lion to being a champion becoming uh the, the feeling of successful which is by the way in the eightfold noble path this is the sama sankapa or the right intention our right intention is to win to be on top of our game and we get there through the the uh uh the sukha which is exactly opposite of dukkha and sukha is defined as feeling safe feeling secure feeling comfortable and feeling satisfied and then on top of that is feeling successful at it we can do this we can continue to feel safe secure comfortable and satisfied because we've got the skills to do it but it takes a lot of practice that's a good point um you know i've i've, I've really admired uh just there was a couple of videos i saw where you talked to some younger students and since i teach high school i really felt a lot of compassion watching that discussion because it seems that anxiety is, is a major feeling these days amongst young people. Um, so watching you sort of use the Dhamma to help talk um, a younger a younger student out of their anxiety was, was kind of heartwarming for me to watch. Um, and that, that sort of core sense of insecurity that I guess is common in human life, but why do you think it's so much more common these days? I don't. No, you don't think so? <laughs> no, no. People have been uptight for centuries, literally. If anything, things are getting better. Okay, I like that. <laughs> yeah, things are getting better. Things yep. are getting so bright I have to wear shades. I think that's the song. <laughs> Here I am talking to you. You're in Thailand and I'm in California. So that's pretty awesome. I couldn't have imagined this when I was a teenager. 
Yeah, I couldn't do that way back when, exactly. Um, and not only that, but you have heard the expression, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to explore that a little bit because the reality is, is that that's not exactly the case. Is more the case is you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, but first it's going to really piss you off. Now, why is that? Well, because the truth is going to set us free from the lies that we have been told, the lies that we cling to, the lies that we love the most, the things that we're delusional about. But Let's back up just a little bit, back to ye shall know the truth. Well, wow, that's a new one. They've Mm -hmm. been saying that for 2,000 years, and wow, has the Catholic Church and all kinds of creatures been keeping, make sure that you don't know the truth, that you want to know, they want you to know what they want you to know, Mm -hmm. not the reality. And that over time, that's kind of gotten out of hand. First was with cureform tablets, then we come across block writing, and then we come for uh, Gutenberg's movable type. Then we go through television and radio and electronics, and now we've got the Internet. Now, there's going to be a whole lot of crap published, but eventually it kind of sifts itself down, and the truth will come out. And so... um, then, in fact, there's many different indications of that, and including that the younger people are leaving religion and the uh, Republican Party in droves. Christianity is literally falling apart. Why is that? Is because the kids don't believe it anymore. You see, when I was in uh, uh, in high school in rural South Carolina. The kids were discouraged from going off to university. They wanted to keep them on the farm, keep them at home, give them a job in town, whatever like that, because they knew then, even in the 1960s, that university education was dangerous for a Christian kid. Unless you could get him into uh, one of the many Bible colleges they have in South Carolina, or they did back then. But that didn't work so well in so many cases but now those kids in south carolina they've got their cell phones they've got internet they've got the ability to go look for finding the things that they want to see and their moms and dads can't keep them at home with sheltered Uh okay so in fact uh there has been a lot of interference with good education for many many years What the Republicans are doing now is just the same old thing they've been always doing. They're just being caught at it now because, guess what? The truth is going to be known. Things are going to become public. And uh, uh, that's kind of the cleansing that society needs to go through. Even though we as society, we don't really want to see how dirty things actually are. We'd rather just go along to get along. But here's the point about that. And that is, is that for each individual one of us, seeing how dirty politics, religion, all of that kind of stuff is, is also 
liberating. Knowing the truth about that stuff is liberating. And one of the most important things to know as part of that truth is, is that that world out there is not yours. It's not yours to pine over. It's not yours to fix. It's not yours to struggle with. That the only real issues that we need to, uh, to deal with are the ones inside, and most of those have to do with why do I want to go fix that stuff out there when I could fix what's in here instead? Because I can fix what's in here, and I can't fix what's out there. Especially since a whole lot of people don't want me to fix what's out there. They want to fix it their way. <laughs> so, what we do with that is understanding that we can rise above that world. This is where the super mundane, or in the Pali, the Lokatara comes in. And that is, is that we can transcend all of that stuff, be above the world. But the world is not my issue, it's not my problem. There's a saying, every, every one of us, every human being is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. The question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt like a victim? You're going to be clawing your way out of it, or are you going to be sitting on top of your world? There's a sense in which we can we can think of that pile of dirt as the five aggregates. <laughs> well, yeah, and we can also think of it all of that as the Sankara, part uh -huh. of the five aggregates, in the sense that that's all the dirt. Yeah, that's all the crap. That's all the sewage. And here we are sitting on top of it rather than struggling with it anymore. I was I wonder if I could pick up um, a couple of the things you said and kind of draw them together. Um, you, you were talking about Christianity and I was thinking about um, Ajahn Buddhadasa was sort of famous for telling all the Westerners who were sitting in front of him, like, you didn't need to come all the way to Thailand to be free. You could pull the leg hard <laughs> onto the root or the core of your own religion. Um, under, he basically said if everybody understood their own religion, um, it would kind of come to the same place. And then you also had mentioned universities. So I'm wondering if if do you think that um, each of the religions, um, you know, Buddhism and, and other religions, and even maybe even what we learn at universities, if, if there if there is a way in which they do come to the same place? Um, well, first off, we can talk about things at two different levels. One would be the ordinary level, and then the other would be at the super mundane level. And that the Christianity has tried to control the mundane level because that's the only thing that they could control was the mundane level. What school the kid goes to and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. all right? Uh, and that uh, uh, the super mundane level was left for early childhood. They have that saying of train up a child and the way he should go, and they generally mark that at age seven. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then that child will go the way that he's been told to go. Well, that's actually quite true. And that's what creates a destiny. But... When we recognize that that's what's happened, we see the truth in it. That truth shall set us free. If we're willing to become free, we do not have to go by the program that we were given in childhood. That we can change that program. 
But the place and the way to change it is whenever that program comes up. As soon as it comes up, that's the time to do something about it, is when it, when it comes up as a thought or as a feeling. And by the time we have it come out of our mouth, it's getting kind of late. But what we say becomes what we do. What we do becomes our habits, and our habits become our destiny. And destinies are great big things like great big ships, really hard to turn around. But what we can do is to change this thought, one thought at a time, over and over again, until we get into the habit of having better thoughts at those times when we need to have those better thoughts. Like, oh, this is just a game that's being played. This is not my problem. As opposed to them fighting words. <laughs> those are those are two very different types of people, or, or two di very different mind moments, you could say. So, how would you? What would you Same say? Same people, different mind moments. Exactly. <laughs> Um, I've, I've encountered this, but what would you say to people who have a very, very difficult time of seeing that there's even a program there to wake up to and escape from? Like, how would you help those people um, wake up to the fact that they are conditioned and that they are following this program and it's not serving them? How would you help those people wake up and see that and, and make a change? Actually, I can't. Just like you heard the expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. This is also true of the Dhamma, that some students, most students, most people, in fact, are not ever going to be students of the Dhamma. There are certain kinds of people who will not get anything out of it. And an example would be with the psychotherapists that say that they can't much help um, a sociopath or a psychopath mm -hmm. because the psychopaths can't see the dukkha. So if one is narcissistic or um, uh, terrified of seeing his own dukkha, in other words, he's uh, he, he gotten himself to the point that he has to be a certain way. And so he can't see anything through that because that would terrify him. Therefore, He's stuck. And um, uh, one example of that would be then someone who would argue. They're out there seeking the truth, and when the truth hits them, they argue with it. They can't accept it. The truth will not set them free. It will piss them off every time. Okay, so there's a whole lot of people that are out there like that, that they really do want to know the truth, but when they hear it, they don't like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so all in all, I would say that only about 10% of people are even capable of getting the Dhamma. But wow, 10%? I mean, if we got, you know, uh, let us say 15 million Buddhists, 10% of that, that's 150,000 Buddhas running around? Yeah, we, we can handle that. <laughs> Pardon? That's actually a pretty high percentage. You know, in, in medicine, that would be like normal, you know, like I think for something to be rare, it has to be like significantly under 5% or something like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Actually, you could yeah. look at it, at, you could actually look at it in the sense of the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. That in fact, enlightenment 
is the placebo effect that you took a Buddha pill and you got it. <laughs> I mean, how how easy could it be? You know, maybe we should discuss some of these hot topics um, that you see <laughs> <laughs> just for fun, right? I, I mean, thought that was a hot topic I just said. <laughs> yeah, that is a hot topic that made me think of it. Um, but, you know, words like enlightenment, awakening, liberation, stream entry, arahatship, things, things like this are really, really, jhana, these are all really uh, things that people are interested in uh, these days. And Yeah, are, it's called greed. <laughs> yeah, it's spiritual materialism. Mm -hmm. I want this attainment. I want that attainment. I want this um, uh, um, uh, Boy Scout badge. Uh -huh. I want badge. the badge for humility. A merit badge for humility, and a merit badge for Jana, and a merit. <laughs> that's what. That's the men the mentality of of the West. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of all of this is to stop wearing labels because you're already okay. You don't need the labels. And if you can be that, if you can come out label-less, then somebody's bound to put a very fancy label on that. <laughs> and that's where all of this stuff, enlightenment. So let's look at the word enlightenment. It's a very interesting word, you know. The word enlightenment really has nothing at all to do with Buddhism. And it has everything to do with a great big conflict that the Catholic Church was having with literally everybody. They were after the poets. They were after the contractors. They were after the um, uh, the, the Bible readers. They were after the scientists. They were after the musicians. Anything that was not church music, they were not on it. Okay. And so... Uh, this brought about or was part of the age of enlightenment or the renaissance, especially with the age of reason. But let's look at this. Let's not take tradition. Let's not take what the old folks have been telling us for centuries and let's figure it out. So that was the age of enlightenment. And so you can see that that kind of word would be get, get stuck onto the practice of uh the teaching of the Buddha, except that the Age of Enlightenment was a pretty bloody time. A lot of guillotines happening in France and all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, there, there's not any good reason to use that other than it just kind of got stuck someplace on it. I guess you can uh, say lightning, you know, since people's heads were coming off, they got much lighter. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Right, exactly. <laughs> How to lose 20 pounds of ugly flab in a hurry. <laughs> and so, um, but we can look at the word enlightenment for its value. And the, the word enlightenment then has the quality of light, like turn the lights on, light of day, the ability to see. This is the knowledge that we've been talking about. You shall know the truth because we're going to shine a light on it. We're going to get the facts out. And then when we see what a mess there is, we then begin to get the strong desire to clean up that mess. Okay, and when we get it all cleaned up, now that's freedom. 
And so the knowledge and deliverance is what brings about the freedom. Mm -hmm. But like I said, it's going to piss you off when you find out what a mess there is and how much you've got to clean up. <laughs> I had this experience the other day. Um, I was uh, I was sitting in the jacuzzi at the gym and the bubbles were on, the jets were going, right? And they're on a timer and there was probably six strangers around me and the timer suddenly turned off and the jets turned off. And then as the jacuzzi became clear, uh, all of a sudden I noticed that there was human hair floating all around me in the jacuzzi. And I was like, oh, gross, stop. Maybe <laughs> point. That Ignorance that is bliss. <laughs> when the mind lifts up and you see what's in there, it can be very disturbing. <laughs> well, you chose to get disturbed. Yeah. You had a rule in there. Oh, when you see hair in the jacuzzi, you're supposed to get disturbed. You said, yes, ma'am, I'll get disturbed when I see hair in the jacuzzi. And then here you go do it. Yeah. <laughs> or if you change that rule into, wow, that is interesting hair in the jacuzzi. Then you might have. <laughs> I'll just let it clean my arms and chest. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to take a shower anyway. I'm all right. Yeah. No problem. That's that's a back to that point that we were making earlier about most of life's traumas mm -hmm. are manufactured, made up, non-important, created. Like your reaction to that here was a created situation that you were absolutely in reality in, in no danger. Yeah. Of, that upon, was the reality. <laughs> upon reflection, it made me think of, you know, stopping, letting the mind settle, become clear so I can see the dukkha that's in it and, you know, remove the causes, I guess you can say. So as an ah, Exactly. All right. And so if we can see hair in the jacuzzi uh, with balance and equanimity, then maybe when we uh, turn the, the hydrant off inside the mine and let the gunk settle, we can see it easily also. What is it? Oh, no, I don't want to. You talk about hair. This stuff is terrible. <laughs> so that in that regard, that's the whole point is that we don't really want to see Mm -hmm. the cause of our um, suffering, because it always becomes our own responsibility. That never does the blame game work. Mm -hmm. You cannot pin the responsibility for anything on anyone else. Because the only really thing that's going on is not what happened, it's our reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And when we learn to control the way that we react to the world, we're the king. <laughs> you can live the way that you want to because you know that the world is going to do what it wants to do and guess what it's none of your business all you have to do is just stay out of danger stay out of trouble you don't have to fix anything there's a, there's a sense in which and what you're saying that that the jets in the jacuzzi or in the jets in the mind is 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 fear that there's there's a sort of underlying fear that's preventing us from wanting to look directly at what's going on inside mm -hmm. yes uh basically um let us put it this way in the sense of three levels of doubt 
the first level of doubt is the victim's position of I can't fix it myself. Who can I get to fix it? Or maybe I can get a plastic Jesus or maybe I can put some money in the collection plate or maybe I can get a, uh, uh, oh, a DNA specialist to look up my DNA or maybe I can go to an astrologer or maybe a priest or maybe a psychologist or maybe a guru. Okay, and there's maybe this guy and maybe that guy and maybe a a deity or a god or whatever, but we're always looking for help, which is also the same thing as looking for blame. Because who's going to help us is the one that we're blaming for getting us in this place in the first place. He did it. God, go do your job and fix me the way I want to be fixed is the kind of position that we are in as a victim, is finding somebody else to blame for our predicament. This is where all of the guru worship and all of that kind of stuff comes from. So, once we come to the understanding of the second noble truth, is that greed, ill will, and delusion is the cause of my suffering, not what somebody said to me or what somebody else did to me. And when we begin to say that, then the second level of doubt presents itself into can I gain the skills I need to come out of that second noble truth? And the answer to that is sure, give it a go right now. I want to see you do it. Come on, come on. I want to see you. I want to see a smile. Come on. There you go. Right. (laughs) That's it. That's all it takes. (laughs) And we need to practice that over and over and over and over again because we got every new moment as an opportunity to smile, darn you, smile. To have a a joyful life. Our choice, why is it that we keep choosing to be kind of quasi-miserable all the time? Why is it? Well, that's how we were trained. Go ahead. I was going to say, why is it that we prefer um, happiness that comes uh, at the acquisition of a cause or conditional happiness, but we don't have any interest in unreasonable or unconditioned happiness? (laughs) Ah, because we were trained that way. We were trained that way. Uh, That that, uh, you're not supposed to be happy on your own. You're supposed to wait for mommy to give you a gift and then you're supposed to appreciate her. Because she's got insecurities, and so mommy passes her own securities down, insecurities down to her child, from father to son, mother to daughter, generation after generation, just more and more layers of crap is added to the kid. As society gets bigger and fatter and and, uh, more robust, every kid is born and raised with more and more and more ridiculous rules that we don't need to follow at all. Sometimes drowning in rules. To where really is there's only one rule that we need, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. It goes both ways. I'm not going to cause myself any trouble or anybody else. Because if I cause somebody else trouble, they'll try to get me back. Humans are revengeful animals. I know, I've been there, done that. 
At one time, you would not want to cross me. I'll get you. <laughs> so I would have wanted to cross like maybe 40 years ago. <laughs> well, I'm more subtle at it now. I can slice and dice someone and serve them for supper, and they don't even know how delicious they are. <laughs> so, uh, this is where the Dhamma is going to is is that we stop caring about the world and start caring about making our own little world as pleasant as possible for all the people around us make friends enjoy your life things are really great hot dogs are great but we don't just let that happen because we have been told to have expectations that we're supposed to work. Delayed gratification, all of that kind of stuff. But really, joy, security, comfort, and happiness can be had by just remembering that it can be had. And then we go back to the old habit. Never mind, start again, come back. You can be happy again. All you have to do is remember that Those it's okay. Those old habits like to come back, don't they? Pardon? Those old habits do like to keep coming back, don't they? Uh, actually, you, you could say that it's very much like uh, in the mountains, that waterfalls create deep crevices. Rivers create deep, deep channels, okay? And that same kind of neuro circuitry happens within the mind so that those neuron paths, they get kind of overloaded with this kind of circuitry and they're able to handle large volumes of unhappy data. But we could begin to retrain the mind to have a, an alternate path to have some happy neurons connect together so that we can uh, let the old highway of unhappy thoughts kind of dwindle and die off over time. Then, in fact, one of the things that they pointed to is, is that it takes about seven years to replace all the neurons in the brain, which means that for the average Joe Blow, seven years ought to do it. And guess what? That's exactly what the Buddha said, seven years. <laughs> so is there, is there a sense in which then um, we can say that stream entry might be more of a stream change and that we're changing those those deep all right let's look at this so if you want to talk about the soda pond as a stream mm -hmm. enterer what does the word enter mean and what is the stream mm -hmm. okay that basically taking a dive or going into it rather than sitting on the shore and playing with this kind of river now we've got change it we're going to actually jump in yeah. All right, and what is the, the the stream is the stream of reality, the Dhamma, that we're not going to be sitting on the uh, the shores of um, corrected memory and concepts, and we're going to go with the flow. So going with the flow is all that uh, I mean. We've been going with the flow for all my lifetime, and nobody thought a word about it. But when you use the word stream entry, now it's a hot shot word. And all it really means is, hey, let's just 
chill. Let's just go with the flow. Now, there's more to it than than that in the sense of these kind of uh, doubts that we were talking about before. Um, once we have the uh, the position that we can do this, we also the third level of doubt is what is the correct method or the path? And the, uh, the way that it's expressed is knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. Because everything that we've been doing so far, obviously, is not the path because we haven't gotten where we want to be. So what is the path is to be where you are and like it. So uh, once we come through those three layers of doubt, we are actually on top of the world because we know what to do. And and so we become really dedicated then to the Dhamma. Well, actually, one of the major points is, is that we're beginning or we're actually now to the point of being willing to look at all of our trash. The stuff that we used to hide from, deny, don't want to look at it. All of that stuff about you shall know the truth and the truth shall net you free, but first it's going to piss you off. We get over that. Oh, I would rather know the truth and be free than have to put up with my own delusions about what I don't like about the truth. Okay, so we begin to start looking at and seeing our, um, our hate, our greed, our delusions. We can see it now because finally we're really willing to look because we can see how valuable it is to not dabble in the dukkha. We could be free from it, but we have to really be on guard for it and be willing to admit when we did step in it rather than ignore it. Um, Al, Al Sharpton has a little joke about when he was a little kid, he and his uh, cousin got into the blueberry pie. And here these two little kids are blackberry pie all over their face. And Granny comes in and says, what happened to my blueberry pie? And those kids say, I don't know, Granny. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, that's how we often live our own lives is that even though we've, we've been in the pie, uh-huh. we don't want to admit it. Mm-hmm. And here in this level at the point of the soda pine, is, is that he really does want to see all of the problems so he can fix them. We're willing to really look. That's part of the entry into the stream is taking a really, really good look. And we're willing to do that. They're not wanting to hide from it anymore. Sometimes we do, but mostly we got the attitude of, hey, let's fix it rather than hide, rather than hide it away and let it get worse. And that that is that is a major change because I found that um, a lot of people would rather hold on to um, their their beliefs about themselves and about the world and the suffering that goes with it than than try to change it um, at all or even admit right. that there's a problem uh, that they'd they'd rather be right than be happy is the is the best way I could put it exactly. And so that's the vast majority of people for one reason or another, they'll find one thing or another to prevent them from getting into the change model that they, yes, they can change. Okay. One of them is that first layer of doubt. Oh, I couldn't change. I got to get somebody to do it for me. 
or the second level of change uh, uh, doubt is to say, oh, I wish I could change, but I can't. Or that third level of doubt is to say, oh, I don't have a clue about what to do. And so when those three things are, are uh, cleaned up, now we've got a plan. That's and what is that plan? Live according to the plan. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to, you know, we know what life is like now. We know that we can either wallow in our dukkha or we can change it by seeing it. And so this is the basic point about nobility. Is that willingness to change in order to get out of the dukkha. And that's basically marked by that point of the soda pond. Then, in fact, you, you know that a lot of people dabble with and want to ordain. Mm-hmm. Many of them do. That's the point. Are you willing to actually ordain? You can see Duke well enough that you actually are willing to make a complete lifestyle change to get out of it. And most people are, no, 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 I, 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 I don't see Duke well enough to drop all of this. <laughs> uh, and, and so um, there is the path for the layman. Mm-hmm. And it still has to do with that quality of the dedication to the path. That the only thing that we really care about is keeping out of the dukkha, to see that dukkha and stay out of it. And that's the only real point. Which means then, in the case of being married, the easy way is to let the wife be right on everything. Anything that she wants, let her have it. Women are better with money, better with houses, better than everything with the guys. The biggest problem a, wife, a, a woman would have is trying to convince her husband to let her do it the way she wants to. So the Dhamma dude is going to say, okay, I got it. Let her do whatever she wants to do, and I'm going to sit here on the porch and enjoy my life. This is the life of the householder, is to let the wife run the business, run the house. Go ahead. Uh, you did mention earlier that society, that the world is much better today, and that was that was, that is a major shift that in the past 50 years or so, um, we stopped keeping women out of out of you know making decisions and shaping the world, and now they've been participating now for a while, and uh, and the world has changed a lot since then. Um, but I wanted to you know most most people have to kind of live in dual income households these days, so both both partners in a marriage or a relationship would have to work. So uh, you mentioned uh, willingness to ordain, and I was thinking. Um, how do we how do we ordain, so to speak, the mind uh, when we're still going to work? We're still paying our mortgage, still raising our kids. We're still doing all of these things. How do we how do we ordain the mind without getting ordained and going to a monastery? <laughs> well, it's it's a process, uh-huh. and the process actually has a um, a particular set of let us call them values that the Buddha talks about it in the sense of the four requisites. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the four requisites re, means requirements, or let us call it uh, the poverty line for all human beings. Below the poverty line, there is actual suffering. 
So within the Buddhist context, uh, the requisites means that if you don't have that requisite, that there's actually going to be some natural dukkha. But if you do have the requisites, then that's all you need. They're just requirements at that level. The more that you have is of no value. Enough is enough. That's the whole point. Okay, so what are those four uh, requisites? One is just enough shelter, just adequate shelter, uh, which could mean downsizing, inviting new people to come live with you, all kinds of different options in the sense of not holding tightly to this is my house because the house is saying the same thing and the house is more right. You're saying this is my house and the house is saying this is my human. <laughs> Little Tyler Durden that, in there. <laughs> and, and the house is the boss because anything that that house needs, you go jump to it. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the sewer needs fixed, you go fix it. All right? So when we begin to understand that our material possessions often own us, then we can begin to change our attitude about them. So just enough clothing, just enough food, just enough shelter, just enough medicine. Now, there are all so many people in uh, Western society that are missing one of those or maybe two of those items. But the, within the context of the monkhood, that's where the whole monkhood is set up, is to have the monks to have just enough housing, just enough clothing, just enough food, just enough medical attention, so that they can live a happy, easy life. But the Western mindset is the more the better. Got to have a bigger house. Let's, let's build an extra room. Let's yeah. put in a swimming pool. Right. <laughs> let's remodel the kitchen. Right. Okay, so uh, if you don't remodel the kitchen and don't put any of that stuff away, then you can pile all of that money up and come to Thailand for a couple of years earlier than you would have. Yeah. <laughs> come at 35 instead of 37. <laughs> Something I recommend the happiness in Thailand is contagious, the air. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, Did you know that there's actually 12 guys here in Thailand now? We've actually got a Sangha group oh, for wow. the guys that are currently in Thailand. From your from your students, from your... Uh... Mm-hmm. Oh, great. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know that. So, um, the whole point then for the layman is to learn that anything above those four requisites is something that the wife could take care of. When I was in India, there was a, 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 a book, it's a Muslim book, and it's a joke book, a Muslim joke book, and it uh, has the, the name of it is Mullah Nasruddin. Now, these are various stories about Mullah Nasruddin. And so one of the stories is, is that the guys in the neighborhood came to him and says, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I only do the important things. I let all the unimportant things be left to the wife. And he says, oh, well, what, what's that? And he says, oh, what house we live in, what clothes I wear, where the money goes, what school the kids go to, what kind of car we have, you know, all of the really unimportant things in life. 
And they says, well, well, what do you do? And he says, oh, I take care of only important things like, does God exist? And where is happiness? Okay, so that's the way that we can, in fact, live our lives in the Dhamma is by devoting ourselves to the Dhamma in that the lifestyle, whatever lifestyle that you're in. You've got a car, sure. If you want to live at the watch, take the car to the watch. It's okay. That everything is really easy. It's a matter of changing our attitude. And so you can change your attitude of, the, oh, I've got to work into the attitude of, hey, gosh, I don't have to work anymore. I can just sit around and enjoy life. Yeah, I'll go to the office and I'll sit there and enjoy that too. Yeah. I feel like um, I see sometimes like there's like two potential streams in every moment where you can go the way of craving and you can go the way of Dhamma. Like when I'm on my way to work and I'm late for work and then somebody really slow pulls in front of me immediately, those two options come up. Like I can either like let go of craving and relax into the moment, put on a smile and just be with the Dhamma. Or I can get annoyed that somebody really slow pulled in front of me on my way to work and, and perpetuate uh-huh. the habit of. Right. Uh, don't, in America, don't they call that road rage? And it's very, very common. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But presence of mind is, oh, I'm really glad that guy foot cut in front of me. That gives me an opportunity to slow down, not move too fast. Oh, look, it's a beautiful day after all. But while we're in a hurry, we're not seeing what's passing by. We're way too far oriented out into the future in a hurry to get someplace. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you, just because I love this, um, you know, Buddha Dasa talked about Dhamma language and people language, and you talk about mm-hmm. the name and the noble versus ordinary view. So I was wondering if we can, like, for fun, uh, like, look at noble uh, applications of different concepts in Buddhism that people talk about and get really confused about and see if there's like a noble way of looking at these different concepts. We, we, All right. we, we talked about stream entry already and um, but how about the concept of the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha? Is there an noble way of looking at the, the triple gem? Well, let's go back and talk about the two kinds of languages first. Okay, and get that, uh, uh, let us say, with some understanding. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa actually uses the analogy of a balloon and a knife. Balloon language versus a knife language. Now, what is a balloon language is the, the polite behavior that it underlies all of the grief, under, unhappiness, and misery that we have, but we have this kind of light balloon uh, language at, at the top of it. Um, uh, good example is what they call Southern hospitality. Southern hospitality is real until you've been there for four and a half minutes. <laughs> like bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bless your heart. And I'm about to stab it if you don't get out of here. So, uh, the uh, uh, the idea of recognizing that each one of us has 
the capability of making a choice every moment and that we've been making a choice, but generally the easy way out, which was the way we did it last time. And so we live our lives reacting. We keep reacting or acting in the same way over and over and over again because it's a habit. But what we're now doing is we have the invitation to remember to look at what we're doing, to investigate, to recognize that the way that we've been doing was painful. Let's not do it that way. Let's do it a happy way. And so we begin to change one thought at a time over and over and over again, and that eventually begins to change our attitude. But we have to keep practicing. A lot of students will get caught in the place of, oh, I've gotten far enough. This is really great. And then they stop practicing, and all of a sudden they're miserable again. They don't even know why. Or uh, the analogy would be that a kid is on a swing and they say, push me, daddy. And so when we start to, the swing going, it's a bit of work. But mm-hmm. after we get the kid going, it's fairly easy to keep pushing and keep pushing. But if we forget, or we get distracted or we stop, the swing will come back down to the zero point of gravity. OK, mm-hmm. which would be the default position. The default position is generally our lowest point which is where we live our lives, then we could push, push the right effort and get things swinging again. But if we don't keep pushing, it's going to go back down to the the zero point or the low point of, uh, of gravity. So this is a good example of how to practice is get it going, get your joy going, and then keep pushing that joy, keep pushing it, keep pushing it just a little more every time enough just enough just like with the four requisites we also have just enough knowledge not all the knowledge just enough to know that we can be happy we don't have to have all of the stuff figured out we don't have to know all the teachings of the buddha just enough that's a big one yeah just enough will do you a little dab will do you All we have to do is to know enough to remember that I can get myself out of the mess that I feel I'm in right now. That's the basic of it, is is that we can change if we remember we can change. Was that that the knife in Buddha Das's analogy, the balloon and the knife? Yes, let's look at that knife for a second, because that knife actually cuts right through. Mm-hmm. That is, that in fact, in a way, dangerous. That mm-hmm. that knife language will cut right through into the truth, and the truth's going to set you free, but it's likely to piss you off first. So that's why uh, noble language, uh, Dhamma language, is referred to as a knife, is because it's going to cut things open. In fact, you have probably heard it often used in uh, connection with Buddhism, the words wholesome and unwholesome. Mm-hmm. which comes from the Pali word of Kusala and Akusala, mm-hmm. which not only is just a region of India, but it's a particular kind of grass, a big, big, heavy grass that's even grassier, bigger grass than uh, lemongrass. Big, bushy stuff. And they would, in the old times of the Buddha, would take um, boards and bricks and logs and things on this big grass and get it dried out and flattened out, and it could be used as a knife. 
And so when things are kusala, what that means is that we can cut that stuff open. We can see what's inside. And a kusala means that we're still blind. We can't see what's in it. So that's the what unwholesome means is that it's dark, obscure, difficult to fathom, uh, uh, dangerous, etc. And kusala means we can whack that thing open. Sort of also like the balloon. Guess what happens to the balloon? It pops or it gets lost. It's ephemeral, doesn't last. But the knife language lasts. It's the gift that keeps on giving. What is that? The ability to cut things open. Or again, back to the ability to see. So Akusala is the, the point I mean, we can't see. We can't cut it open. In English, in, in um, both computers and especially electrical engineering, they have the word diagnosis. They also use that in medicine. The word diagnosis actually means to cut open diag in order to see or to know, gnosis. Diagnosis means to separate, to cut out, that if you've got a, a television that's malfunctioning, you can isolate this area of it or isolate that area to find out where the problems are. This is what diagnosis is. And so this is what we mean by that Dhamma language is the language that we use to be able to cut things open so that we can see the dukkha. This what this what I, this kind of makes me think of is this knife you're talking about is uh, I, I think there's probably some connection to the notion of Satori, sudden awakening, because when when like a certain knowledge is true enough and sharp enough to to reach the ignorance that it that it's the antidote to, the mind will will sort of switch into an instant um, dispelling of that ignorance. Um, like I, mm -hmm. I always analogy of, of you know uh, being a child in the dark and thinking there's a monster in the corner and then you know, yelling for your parents and they come in, they turn the lights on and the monster vanishes because it was actually the shadow of, of a coat rack on the wall so that the lights coming on is like that sharp, true knowledge entering the mind and instantly the delusion of the monster and then the fear that was dependent on that delusion will vanish as soon as, as, soon as the, the knowledge enters the mind. That kid needs to keep doing that for the rest of his life, to keep yeah. turning the lights on and keep saying that his monsters are not real, they're imagined. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what we do. That's the whole teaching right there, mm -hmm. is to stop guessing what's in the dark and shine a light on it, cut it open, take a look. I've heard they, I've heard you say to some of your students that they it's it's they need to sort of become okay with not knowing something. And I feel like in relation to what we're talking about now, that's sort of, since we're not okay with not knowing, we fill it with imagination and superstition and fantastical, magical thinking. And if we just were okay with it, knowing, we wouldn't constantly. Try to figure it out, right. That, that's one of the, um, the sins that we've inherited from our fathers is the need to know. Humans have got it really bad. The need to know. Here are the dogs, they don't need to know much of anything and they can just be happy. The only thing they need to know is they're a stranger in the yard. That's the only thing they need to know. Mm -hmm. 
or where's the grocery? That's the only thing that they need to know. But look at us humans. We need to know all kinds of things. We need to know the weather. We need to know who voted. We need to know who's running. We need to know our taxes. We just life is absolutely full of stuff that we feel that we need to know. And we're in a panic when we don't know. Where the reality is, is that we don't need to know any of that stuff. All we need to know is, oh, I could be happy right now. That's all we need to know. I don't need to read the next 20 sutras. I've got enough right here. Wow, I, I got enough. This is good enough. I've, I've got enough. That's the way to begin to, to think in the sense of the four requisites, only the basics, just enough. Learn to be satisfied with very little. And then you can be satisfied with anything. You know, the, uh, when you say that, uh, the irony I remember is is actually, you know, my I had I had a very profound awakening experience. That's one book that lasted for many, many, many months afterwards. And it, I actually sort of uh, lost it when I started filling my head with with the with, with the teachings. I mean, you know, it kind of came back and helped me in the end because there was also the habits coming back. But but be, developing this obsession with like knowing the names and methods and then the suttas and all that stuff kind of um, eventually became an obstacle. And I remember Buddhadasa talking about becoming Dhamma heavy or developing a white darkness from having too much knowledge or constantly seeking knowledge. And that's a hard one to get rid of. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. Exactly. That's what we're that's what we're referring to. And so many Westerners get caught in the thirst of, well, I've gotten all of this Dhamma and it is so good. Maybe if I read more Dhamma, I'll get something even better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Rather than the point is, is that, well, I've got enough Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Let me capitalize on this. Let, let, let's fulfill this one. Uh, I did that with music when I was a kid in the sense of that I was never satisfied to really, really learn this piece well. I'd get it slapstick and get it good enough, and then I wanted to go play something else. I never would actually refine and get down correctly the piece of music, because I was greedy for the next thing. And I can reflect back upon that now and recognize that was that happened in every aspect of my life. Being in a hurry. So in a sense, being satisfied is actually a really great skill because then you can stay with what you're working with instead of moving on to the next thing so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just be satisfied with what you're doing. And if we become dissatisfied with what we're doing, we can quit doing it long enough to get ourselves back into a state of satisfaction again. And then never mind, start again. But we rarely think of it like that. We always think of, oh, I got to get this done and then I can feel good. Always delaying our gratification rather than, hey, take your gratification right now. Get yourself into a position to where you feel gratified all the time. Take your gratification right away. Yeah. 
turn instant gratification into a practice rather than a pursuit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully said. Yes, I like that. Exactly. Right. That's a mantra right there. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how much more time I have you because I wanted to uh, before I before I lose you, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your teaching style as well, because I think you have a great pedagogy, as we say in the profession. <laughs> oh, I got a whole big bag full of tricks. Is that what you mean? Well, um, you know, you have to, uh, as I think, you know, I'm a teacher and I also mm -hmm. love sharing the Dhamma with people. Um, and um, what I one thing I admire about you is you seem to be very effective with different types of people, and you have over fourteen hundred or so recordings of your conversations with your students. And I see you navigate different mental states and mindsets and personalities. And um, I've and and then recently I saw you talking to um, somebody who was very young, maybe even a teenager, and you had that person's attention for almost two hours. <laughs> It's hard for me to hold my students' attention for six seconds sometimes. So I wanted to ask you about your your teaching style um, and where it comes from, or you know, just <laughs> share your your teaching style with me. And you know, uh -huh. can I tell you, you uh, introduce it as a joke? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, it co it comes from a movie, and the name of the movie was Robin and the Seven Hoods. Okay. <laughs> and that it was uh, um, basically it was a movie done by the Rat Pack, oh. Dean Dean Martin and uh, uh, Frank Sinatra that that group, okay. And one of the songs in that movie was "You Gotta Have Style." Oh, you really need a style. And then they just go right into it, and they're dancing and singing and pointing out the way that each other's addressed. And like every one of them is is in style. All right. So in that regard, they're allowing yourself to have a style okay. of recognizing what you see uh, is is valuable and that, uh, gosh, I'm an old man. I've been around. <laughs> I watch I, I've been through psychology. I've been through computers. I've been through many, many things that most of the students haven't seen. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so this kind of gives me a, a foundation of having watched the changes that have happened over the past 50 years that the people who are younger, they the stuff, you know, they didn't see the evolution of it because they came in late to the movie. They didn't get the first part of the movie. And uh, that gives kind of an advantage of knowing um, Oh, how the thing got started or whatever. And so uh, basically I would say it's the combination of psychology and the Dhamma. That's, that would be the, the style. The style of being able to put those two together. Now, part of the style also has to do with the quality of Dhamma mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, many in the psychology, psychotherapy, they're in the, the business model, expecting the client to pay for what they get, et cetera, like that, which also has the quality then that it sets up the guru-client relationship and that the, the, the client 
keeps paying the therapist and the therapist keeps dispensing wisdom and the client is supposed to gain value from that and that relationship gets stuck sometimes for years to where with the Dhamma the, the way to do it is accept them in that state but bring them up mm-hmm. to the to the level of nobility to bring them up to being their own psychotherapist to bring them up to the level of no longer a student with a teacher but just friends and the Pali is called Kaliya Metta mm-hmm. right that we're friends together that that's my job is to become a spiritual friend to help my friends figure out why they keep banging themselves in the head with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. And I keep saying, look at the hammer. <laughs> I, I get the sense from what you just said um, that in a relationship between a therapist and a client, because it's within a capitalist framework, you can say um, that it's an exchange and it's an economic exchange, but the Dhamma, it's more of a transmission. You're, you're giving them their own ability to be free rather than keeping them in a state of dependency on you in, in, in that exchange. Mm-hmm. Right. That every, every one of the students eventually uh, will go through or goes through the quality of, I don't need a guru anymore, that I'm my own lion. I can do this. That's the best part of it is when the teacher sees the student grow up to the point that he doesn't need the teacher anymore, that's success. But so many of the students still need a guru. They want the guru. They're dependent upon the guru. They need a guru because they don't have it yet that they can do it themselves. But we have to go through all the way through all three layers of doubt. The doubt is the guru going to do it for me? No. Well, can I do it for myself? No. Well, then how am I ever going to get doing it? Well, maybe I can do it. All right. And so here we go down through there. And the old master, the only thing he can do is he can sit there and watch it. Hmm, I've seen that before. But we can't make people see it for themselves. But we can have fun watching other people figuring it out. And there's a lot of joy in that, is to watch the students figuring it out for themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah. watching that. <laughs> um, so yeah, as we kind of get to this this conversation, um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. That's one thing I. <laughs> find people of that it really impresses me about you um you vote you i've never you're probably the only person I've ever seen that never seems to want anything from anyone and you give your time very with full hands. um yeah i've already got everything i need i've got i've got a paradise here this is nice stuff and also for for viewers who don't know you or haven't seen you uh just so they know um find you on youtube at, uh Damarato Dhamma, and there you have links to find you on Skype and Sangha groups. And um, it took me a while to believe this, but you can open your Skype and call Damarato during the you have the you have the time listed there, and you there and you get one-on-one instruction in the Dhamma. And sometimes it looks like a therapy session. Often, oftentimes it looks like a therapy session. I've seen you navigate some 
some serious um, some serious mental habits in the past that was really impressive to watch. <laughs> well, that's what it really is all about, is the students have to get to the point that they're really willing to look at their crap. Mm -hmm. And here I am with a flashlight. <laughs> and a mirror. Well, yeah. Um, so. Um, or if the British, it's a torch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're in the UK, it's a torch. <laughs> um, so for, for viewers, um, was my second to last question would be, um, what do you? What would you say is the first thing someone should when they when they close this video and you know they're they're going into their first mind moment after closing this video? What's the first thing they should do? Remember to take a deep breath and have the thought, "Wow, that was nice. I could do that. Wow, I could do that. Yeah, I could sit here for a moment and feel good." That's all there is to it. We could do that one thought after another, one moment after another. Life is easy. The practice of the Dhamma is very, very simple. The Eightfold Noble Path is quite simple. To wake up, take a look, make a change, and get a big kick out of it. Congratulate yourself that you can change. Thank you. And then lastly, I just want to know if there was anything else I didn't ask you that you wanted to share or say. <laughs> uh, don't worry, be happy. You're not hurry, call. Uh, you're not happy, call me. I make you happy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a song in there someplace. Yes, I think so. Maybe several. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Michael, thank you. This has been good. This has been great. Thank you so much, Domerado. Uh, once again, thank you for your time and thank you for what you do and all the time you give to your students. All right. See you. It's, see you as well. <laughs>